Nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a wonderful promise. And I'm wanting to look at this text very closely because Paul includes a number of things in this passage that might get you to wonder if that's true. And he assures us that it is. We live in a world of conflict, a world of conflicting beliefs where many are tempted to throw up their hands and say, who knows what's right? Nobody could really know that. Is true assurance of salvation even possible? In the moral fog that really has set over virtually every sphere of influence in our culture, this world will always be allergic to the truth. Pilate speaks for this world system, uh, what is truth when Christ stood right before him? Can you really know what is right? If you dare to declare the truth of Scripture, you're often accused of being arrogant, intolerant, and so forth. But it is precisely the truths of God's Word that are the foundation of our lives. Jesus Christ said, if you hear these words of mine and obey them, you will be likened to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. You could take it to the bank, Jesus said. It's a foundation that won't crumble. It's precisely the truths of God's Word that are the foundation, is the foundation of our lives. And as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, it kind of segues into, is there anything that could separate me from Him? Are the claims of Christ found in the Bible sufficient to take me not only through this life, but into the one to come? When Jesus says incredible things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which I, I can be made right with God and my sins can be forgiven. When Jesus said in simplicity in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Is it really that simple? Can you really know that truth? Or does it take more dialogue, more discussions? I'm all for examining the truths and the claims of Scripture, but there comes a point to where in your life you need to say, this is what I believe and this is where I stand. The Bible was written that you might have that kind of assurance and certainty. And then I want to kind of close this message with with this question, can a true born-again believer lose their salvation? Is that assurance provided here in Romans 8? I think it is. These are ultimate questions, and Romans 8 provides solid answers for them. So this chapter begins with a statement, no condemnation, verse 1, and it ends with nothing shall separate us. That's a pretty incredible message. At the heart of this Mount Everest of Scripture is an assurance for the believer for life and ministry in a hard world. The Apostle Paul was a man who dealt with circumstances that were jolting and dangerous. Just read 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, where he outlines all the things that he endured as an apostle and servant of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes it by saying, on top of that, there was the pressure that I had on me for all the churches, which was more painful for him than even what he experienced bodily. 
And through it all, his ministry and spirit-inspired writings that are in the New, New Testament point us to the power of God and salvation. And so I preach that you would be men and women whose faith is settled upon the truth once for all delivered to God's people. Not perfect in this life, but men and women being conformed into the image of Christ who have declared in their heart and in the way they live, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced. I stand on the promises of His Word. Does that mean I can answer all the questions and objections? No. No, it doesn't. But that's not required for me to obtain salvation in God's eternal life. I rest in what Christ has said. C.S. Lewis once said, a Christian is not someone who never goes wrong, but one who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin again because the Christ life is inside of him. Romans 8, this thought came to me this week. Romans 8 heaves with hope and promise in the power of Jesus Christ. We conclude this chapter this morning by looking at the last two verses and then we're on to chapter 9 next week. But I want to present my thoughts with three questions this morning. The first question is this. Can, can we be sure of anything? Can we be sure of anything? In a world, again, of conflicting beliefs, is true assurance of salvation possible? Is it possible for me to know what is right and what is wrong in this world? Again, this world is allergic to any type of truth claim. But I'm talking to you this morning, not a mass of people that I don't. I'm talking to us this morning who have gathered under the banner of Jesus Christ. Can we know the truth and can we stand in it? We must. I mentioned some months ago, I think, um, D.A. Carson's book, Becoming Conversant with the Emerging Church, which was a movement, the Emerging Church was a movement under the evangelical canopy that was really bizarre, and I think it's well on the way out, which is good news. It just was a bad stream of um, professing Christians uh, who said, you can't really know the truth. We're evolving. Have you heard that word used a lot? He's evolving. What does that mean? He's evolving. You can't really know the truth. It's, you know, kind of the truth, to quote Scar in The Lion King, truth is in the eye of the beholder. That sounds really good. It can, we can mold it and, and form it and shape it to whatever makes us comfortable. We see that every day in the news in some form or fashion. What was once out of the question is now on the table and with greater rapidity. So in a world full of conflicting beliefs, is true assurance possible for us? Well, I want you to just look at chapter 8. And I quoted D.A. Carson, mentioned D.A. Carson. He, he gives an entire chapter to making the case from Scripture how often the Bible says, we know, I know, we can be certain, we can stand on this. Verse after verse after verse after verse. The Bible was written that you might know that you have eternal life. Look at chapter 8 in particular. Verse 22. Paul says, for we know, what? 
Well, in this case, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Isn't that the truth? Every hurricane, every tsunami, every um, volcano eruption, um, every storm, we're reminded that we live in a, in a world that is susceptible to destructive things. And not only that, death. Death comes with it. So Paul says, we know that. That's something we know. Look at verse 28. This is a bit brighter, isn't it? He says in verse 28, and we know, what? That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that. Paul says, I'm speaking with certainty. That's something you can know by faith. And then our text this morning, verse 38, for I am sure... Are you, Paul? Can you, can you be sure? Well, he certainly writes as if he's sure. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor the full dimensions of, of the outworkings of life in his creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just ask us this morning, is that your testimony? Are you sure? Do you know? Is that where you stand? I think that's a big point in anybody's life, don't you? That's where I stand. Of all the messages, of all the people I could follow in this universe, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I will stand on what he says and the testimony given by his word. Not only all the days I draw breath, but that's my hope for making it to the finish line. That's not all. He says in this chapter, it's not something we work out in our own power. Yes, there's a striving in the Christian life that we're called to do. We're called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, but that adds nothing to our salvation. We cannot earn it. I don't care how many prayer meetings you go to, you can't earn your salvation. I don't care how much you put in the offering plate. That's not going to earn you, you merit with God at all. In fact, it would only add to your guilt if you're trusting in that. Because the message of the gospel is to trust in Jesus Christ as your only Savior. So he says here that this isn't in our own power, look at what he says in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit which dwells within us. The Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. Those are the called out ones, the holy ones. God has called out. That's, that's a reference to the believer, not some hall of fame of famous Christians. That's not saints in, in the New Testament term. The Spirit intercedes for believers according to the will of God. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you that keeps you and holds you. You mean even from myself? Yes, even from yourself. What a message. And then verse 35, he says, who can separate us? Backing up to verse 34, rather. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. 
who's at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there? He's interceding for you. So you have the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, interceding for you. You have the Son, the second person of the Godhead, interceding for you at the throne of God. Could you ask for any greater assurance than that? Do you think their prayers are going to be answered on your behalf to get you to where you need to be? (laughs) Most definitely. How much more assurance do we need? So when you read simple statements of Christ, do you believe them? Do you rest in them? Do you know them experientially? Have you seen God answer your prayers in your life? Do you even talk to Him that way? Do you thank Him when answers come? Even in this letter to the Romans, Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God has kept His promises from the beginning all the way through. Thomas Schreiner, who's a reliable New Testament scholar, said, you know, one of the striking themes in Romans 8 is that the blessings originally promised to Israel have been extended to the church, to believers in Christ under the new covenant. Israel was promised the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 confirms that, that God would not write his law on tablets of stone, but would write it on the flesh of our hearts. And we see in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit has been given to the believer. In fact, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, you're not a Christian, according to verse 9 of Romans 8. Israel had the pledge of future resurrection. In the Valley of the Dry Bones, when Ezekiel preached that message, God called him, go preach to this Valley of Dry Bones. It was a picture of resurrection, which is given to the believer that we have a future resurrection body awaiting on that day. Israel was God's son. That's what he said with respect to Israel before the Exodus. And now believers in Christ are sons and daughters adopted into his forever family. The future inheritance was promised to Israel and now it's pledged to the church. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Israel was God's chosen people and the one foreknown among the nations, and yet the church is said to be foreknown and chosen by God in Romans 8, 29 and 30. The Lord had promised never to forsake Israel. God has said the same to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so I preach not only to you but to myself that God would make us strong in these claims, that your faith would be established and covenant promises, and that you would not be blown here and there by every wind of doctrine or the experiences of this life, to be confident and bold, to say with Israel of old, whatever the Lord says, we will do it, to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth, or Peter, when he answers Jesus, He says, where shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I can think of, uh, when I think of that verse, I can think of no stronger pull on us to gather as a church than he has the words of eternal life. And how about Peter at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You know, and he could have said, who knows? 
I don't think you could really know that question. An answer to that question. No. What did Peter say on that day? You're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And isn't that the appeal of the gospel? That I'm going to move out of wishy-washy land and, and plant my feet solid on the promises of God. He's my savior. He's my God. He, he defines my purpose. He's the one I will look to. And once we come to terms with his claims and promises, we rest in them. We savor them. They are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb to us. They're more valuable than gold. Yes, fine gold. So can we know anything for sure? Yes, <laughs> based upon the promises of God and his work in us. Second question. Can any person or force pry a believer, pry, P-R-Y, a believer from Christ? Can anything rip you out of the hands of your Savior? Well, I think Paul ransacks the human language in every conceivable um, contingency to say no one can pry you or pull you or take you out of the grip of your Savior. I want to look at two sections here, verse 35 and then down to verse 38 and 39, where he lists about 17 scenarios. He says, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, verse 35? And then he mentions tribulation. Tribulation, the, the idea is pressure. The Greek word is pressure. Circumstances that frequently press down on people. Maybe you're dealing with harsh pressures. Life has been hard. Maybe it's been, a, you're just trying to process abuse that you've experienced in your life or the loss of a job or mistreatment in marriage or severe illness and it's been a pressure upon you. Maybe it's financial pressure and you wonder, how in the world can I ever get out from underneath this load? I think Paul mentions these things for the express intent of providing broad application you don't have to be in a Philippian jail to experience these things. This is for you, people of God. Pressure. He is saying to us that there is no tribulation, no matter how severe, that will separate you from the love of Christ. Distress. The Greek word is stenoikoia. It means narrow, Space. It's a compound word. A narrow space. The idea is being confined within a narrow and oppressive space. And we can read uh, of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and think of many instances in his ministry where he was in a narrow and oppressive space. And I think Paul extends again this list for us for the broad purpose of application and was really taken by an account that James Boyce mentioned in his commentary. He mentions an unbearable work situation. No hope for advancement. Maybe you feel that way in one form or another, but Boyce writes, in our time, I'm convinced that many more people experience distress of this nature than outright pressures. Take the example of a man who's in a dead-end job. He entered his company with hopes of advancement, but he's been passed over several times for promotion. Now he's in his late 40s, 
It is getting to where he cannot make a good lateral move, and he knows he will not move up much in this company, if at all. Meanwhile, he's married with a wife and children to support and a mortgage to pay, and he sometimes thinks of being free of these confining circumstances, but he knows that he cannot break free and still honor his commitments, and he's distressed over it. Can distress separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can the worst circumstances separate you from Him? Paul says, no. Let me tell you, I could tell you about some distresses. They don't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, God even works in in our distresses to show us that He's greater still. He mentions persecution, which means being pursued by someone who wants to hurt you. It's not a circumstance. It's, a, it's got personality behind it. It's unrelenting. It's promised. He said to Timothy, Yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution should be an expected response if you, should live, if you would live for Jesus Christ. An expected response. And I'm just reminded that the situation we're living in and the scope and the span of human history, this is an anomaly It's an outlier. We're living in a place of 300 years of unprecedented peace and blessing. Do you realize what God has given to us by this? It's an outlier where we have brothers and sisters around the world and through the centuries who have suffered for the cause of Christ. And the, the more our culture shifts towards secularization, a rejection of biblical truth, the more you can expect that to come. This world will never be a friend of God's grace and righteousness. And if you and I would stand there and we would stand on these truths, you can expect to be persecuted. Jesus promised that division even in your own family. Kevin DeYoung has a way of saying things brilliantly, and he was talking about this recently, recently on, you know, just how erosion has happened, and he, he says, I doubt many pastors would counsel parents to attend a polyamorous commitment service where several people commit to be intimate with one another, or their son's uh, Ku Klux Klan induction ceremony or their daughter's abortion party. I suspect that gay weddings don't offend many Christians in the same way because these ceremonies have already become normalized. And so it is when truth erodes and you leave biblical foundations and then you stand on truth and then you're the bad guy. And then you're, you're, you're made to feel like your position is so outrageous, so yesterday, that you don't even deserve to live. He mentions famine, crop failures for one reason or another, to be hungry. That's something we don't know much about in the land of all-you-can-eat buffets. Famine? He knew about famine. Millions in this world know about famine even now. Will that separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? No. No. Not even 
lack of food, or nakedness. This probably speaks to poverty, economic hard times from natural disasters or war. He mentions danger. The, the Lord is our safety. I was reminded again of that, that episode in the gospel that Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm comes and they went and woke him up and said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith, no matter what danger may come? He mentions sword in verse 35. Violence suffered for the cause of Christ. Paul's life would end by the sword. His head would be cut off because of his stance for Christ. None of these will make Christ love us any less or separate us from his bond upon us. Nothing shall separate us. I thought of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 17. We need to be reminded of this, I think. Now, when they heard Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, they were enraged. What did he say that was so outrageous? Not, nothing, really. He just took them on a pilgrimage of their own history. And they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glow of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a New Testament word to describe that he had died. Wow, there's a lot going on there. First martyr, a special dispensation of grace where Stephen sees Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected, enthroned Christ, standing. Not sitting, standing. I think that's significant. Which just shows that when the Lord's people are hurting, he's standing. He's interceding and receiving them to himself. So Paul says, I'm sure. I'm confident of these things. In verse 38, I'm sure. I stand convinced. Said one who knew people's threats. And in verse 38, he mentions some more that can be absolutely debilitating. Death. Death. Some of you have lost loved ones in one form or another. It's brought grief to your heart. It's changed your life this year. You see things differently. And Paul had seen death. It was the air he breathed personally. Francis Bacon wrote, Men fear death as children fear the dark. Death is the great separator, isn't it? It separates us from our loved ones. 
It separates our bodies from our soul, spirit. If you're without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it separates you from God eternally. And what we have in this whole chapter really is a particular love, God's particular love for His own. And death is not the final word for the believer. What happens to the believer when we die? It doesn't separate us from God. No, it brings us into His very presence, awaiting a future resurrection day. Death is swallowed up in victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I preach so that you will be confident on that truth. All of us deal with a sense of, you know, I, to remain, I'd be, to quote Paul in Philippians 1, I, it's more profitable for me to stay. But it's wonderful to think about going. I'm caught between the two. We all have things that we're committed to, our families, our children, our grandchildren. We have things in our heart that we long to accomplish in this life. But the Lord knows that. And what you and I need to receive is a glorious promise is that if my heart stops beating today, I'm with Him. I am with Him. Paul says, I'm sure of that, verse 38. For I am sure that death nor life, and here he brings uh, comparisons all the way through, uh, you know, could separate me. Death can't do it. Death was swallowed up in victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that if I believe in him, he's the resurrection and the life to me. I will live even if I die. So promised Jesus. But what about life? Death nor life? Life brings hard things, divisions, politics, that'll bless you, won't it? Wars, poverty, sickness, old age. No matter what comes in this life, that won't separate me from him. He goes on to supernatural powers. He mentions angels and rulers things present, things to come. He speaks of the force of time in this world, the tyranny of the clock that we're all under. He speaks of things present. There's, there's nothing in the present that can separate you, believer, from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than anything we face. Things present. By the way, I think it's interesting he doesn't refer to the past. <laughs> That's been paid for. <laughs> by the blood of Jesus Christ. Anything in the present? Anything in the future? What do you mean by the future? Well, any calamity that you could experience in this life, but ultimately, on judgment day, people just live their life absolutely oblivious that there's a coming judgment. where we will stand before the living God to give an account of our life. And the only thing that will matter on that day is, am I in Jesus Christ? Who is the judge of the living and the dead? And that's often dismissed as, well, that's antiquated, that's so yesterday. No, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. He mentions powers. Powers of angels and demons, present and future. 
No powers anywhere can pry us from the hands of our Savior. Can you think of any force or power that can separate you from Christ? There is none. He mentions height or depth, and this is often used by Paul to talk about the unmeasurable dimensions of who God is. He mentions it in that prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, where he talks about the love of God, the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the love of God. It's immeasurable. Alexander McLaren, a great expositor in the 1800s, said, the love of God is everywhere. I think of it in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, O Lord? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. And even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me. There's a really bizarre feeling that I've had in my international travels Uh, Often the route to China was right through the Arctic Circle. And so you're traveling through there for about seven or eight hours of flight time. And, you know, I get up and stretch and go back to the back of the plane and open the little window and look down there. It's It's just ice. Acres and miles and miles of ice. And I think of Psalm 139. If I go to the remotest parts of the earth, he's there. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Nothing can separate me from the love of God and Christ Jesus, my Lord, nor anything else in all creation, he says. Nothing in all the universe can separate us from it. None of these things. And he says, for this, I'm sure. The question is, are you sure? Is this your verse Is this your belief? I pray it is. There's no circumstance or force in this universe that can ever separate us from Jesus Christ. The love of Christ not only draws and satisfies, it keeps us forever. Now, let me close with the third question. And you've been so patient and kind to listen. Third, can a true born-again believer, a true regenerate believer, ever lose their salvation? What I want you to hear me say very clearly, based upon Romans 8 and other passages, is absolutely not. Amen. We cannot lose our salvation. Our salvation didn't depend upon us to begin with, but upon God's grace. And it is God's grace that will see us home. He who has begun a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. And one of the common objections here is, well, you know, that if you believe that, that's only going to lead you to take for granted uh, God's grace and live a, a reckless life. Well, if that's your understanding of His grace, that's a problem. Cheap grace Sounds like this, all is forgiven so you can flirt with your sin. Real grace is all is forgiven so you can flee from your sin. A sign that you are truly born again is a heart to want to obey your Savior. Not see how much you can get away with, but to honor Him. All who are truly born again will persevere to the end. 
two references from Jesus. You can write them down and look at them later, but John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has, he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I will lose nothing. His love cannot be separated even by our own stubbornness. So I, I want to be careful to say that that's not a license to sin. That's a protection that, from despair, <laughs> that his grace is greater than even my rebellion. In John 10, Jesus said, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. A mark of salvation as a sheep of God is that you follow him, the good shepherd. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So says Jesus Christ. It will not snatch them out of my hand. Returning to Paul's writings, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It would be unjust, Wayne Grudem writes, for God to give any kind of eternal punishment to those who are Christians no condemnation means for them for the entire penalty for their sins have been paid for. No condemnation. Not based upon your ability to hold it together. Only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. So that's an important doctrine. The assurance of salvation is a persevering faith. It says in the Bible that many walk no more with him. Demas, Paul mentions Demas in 2 Timothy. Demas, who loved this present world, abandoned the work. And so even when outside forces come to bear, and even when the dictates of our own heart, the sign that you truly know the Lord is that you're running back to him. I quoted C.S. Lewis at the front end of this message. It's not that we have it all together. It's that when we fall, we get back up and begin again in Christ. There's no one here with a clean resume. Amen. There's no one here who's got it all together. We're in constant need of His grace, the grace that saved us and the grace that will lead us home. You know what I thought of just in thinking on this passage? I'll close with this. Years ago, Anna Warner uh, provided a song of simplicity and truth. She wrote, Jesus loves me. This I know. Maybe you're not familiar with verse 5, but it reads, Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, you can count on him all the way to his very presence. He loves you. This we know. Why? The Bible tells us so. Let's bow together in prayer. As we come to the close of the service, this is the time to respond to the things that we've heard. The Bible speaks about the obedience of faith. That means we hear truth and we respond in faith and put it to action in our life. Assured that God is with us 
and supplying everything we need. In this closing moment, it's a time really to respond to the gospel. If you're without Jesus, Jesus Christ in a saving relationship, the way that verses 38 and 39 intersect with your life is that you believe on him and then you can be assured his love will never be separated from you. And of course, to the believer, I don't know how the applications from these verses have impacted your life. But the call is not to dismiss them, but to believe them and savor them and act upon them and apply them to your life. That's how we grow in our faith. That's how we grow in the joy of the Lord. Father, lead us in these closing moments. For those who need to make decisions today, I guess in one way or another, we're all in need of that, that you would just guide us right now. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.